Let me invite your attention to Isaiah 59. This morning in the worship guide, you received a a, uh, commitment card. I want to ask you to take that now, if you will, and uh, fill out the bottom portion and any of the commitments you anticipate making during our commitment time this morning. What we will do is that I will offer an invitation to anyone first who wants to receive Christ or follow Christ in baptism or become part of our church uh, this morning. Uh, Then I'll offer a second invitation to those of us who are members here at Beach Haven and any others who want to participate. And that is when I'm going to ask you to bring your card to the altar. And we'll do this in this order. I want our staff to come first, then our deacons and our Sunday school workers, and then uh, the rest of our members as they feel led to make a commitment. If you make at least one of these, I want to ask you to bring it to the altar. If you make all four or two or three, whatever commitments you make, I want to ask you if you make at least one to bring it in that order, if you will. It'll be a little chaotic, uh, but hey, this is a Baptist church. What do you expect? Isaiah, Isaiah 59 is our text this morning, and I want to speak on the subject of um, on uh, prayerlessness, a quick way to devastate God. Uh, the word devastate, it comes from the Hebrew word shamim, and it's used in Isaiah 59 in verse 16. It's used in some other places throughout the Old Testament as well. It's used, for example, in Genesis 47, 19, whenever the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, our land is desolate because of the famine. And you can imagine after seven years of famine what a land would look like without rain, without crops, desolate because of a famine. And then Job with his body covered in sores and boils, with his finances devastated and with his family devastated, said, look upon me and be astonished or be devastated in Job 21.5. And you can just imagine what a man who'd gone through that looked like after all of that trial and tragedy. And then the word is used also, and I want to be delicate here, in 2 Samuel 13.20 when Tamar was devastated after being violated. Do you know God has got emotion? God is not a robot or automaton. God takes these things personally, and He takes prayer personally. And one of the quick ways to devastate God and to break His heart is to, is to have a life of prayerlessness. And He says in Isaiah 59, in verse number 16, this very thing. He says here, He saw that there was no man and wondered or was devastated. Shamim. The word wondered in the New King James Version is a bit too light. The word is much more intense and has a lot more eruption and devastation in it than what the word wondered would indicate. He was devastated that there was no intercessor. There was no one there to step up like Abraham did for Sodom and Gomorrah. There was no one there to step up like Moses did Israel when they were guilty of worshiping the golden calf. In other words, God takes all of this seriously. God is touched with our behavior or lack of. God is touched by righteousness and God is brokenhearted and devastated over disobedience. So a quick way to devastate God is to lack a robust, growing prayer life. Well, why is that? Well, the text here in Isaiah gives us a, um, a number of reasons. Uh, the first is this. The utterance of many prayers is abominable. That's right. It is a myth that God appreciates all praying. There is some praying that absolutely offends God. 
there's no way to take the sharp edges off of that either. In verses 1 and 2, he makes that clear. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. So their lack of rescue in this day was not due to some lack in God. It's not that God has an arm that's too short to reach the earth. That's not why God was not rescuing Israel or would not with the Babylonian captivity, nor his ear heavy or dull that it cannot hear. In other words, God is not hard of hearing to where he can't hear prayer. So why is it that Israel was struggling? struggling? Why was it that Israel was going to suffer, or Judah was going to suffer, and Israel were going, was going to suffer captivity and invasion? Verse number 2 tells us the problem. And none of the problem had anything to do with God. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. That happened to be the problem. Back in Isaiah 1, God says, you're trampling my courts with your religious exercises. Now, never come to the conclusion where you think that Israel stopped practicing the faith and gave up completely on the God of the Old Testament and worshipped only pagan gods. That wasn't it at all. In fact, during the days of their greatest wickedness, they were profoundly religious. They did not uh, subtract the Old Testament practices from their religion. They simply added pagan practices to the right practices. They did not practice subtraction. They practiced addition. And that offended God to where it separated them from Him. The the words in verse 2, separated and hidden. God separated himself from them and he hid themselves from them, not because there was some lack in him, but because of their sins, transgressions, and iniquities. Proverbs 28.9 says, He who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. In order for God to appreciate our prayers, we have to have a zealous love for the Bible. And with the loss of faith in the Bible, in society, and even in some churches since World War II, our prayer life as a nation has been on the decline and has deteriorated. The practice of religion does not necessarily satisfy God. It's got to be done with faith and with heart. And so, he who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination to God. In other words, God only hears prayer from people who have a heart for the Word. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard or cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I'm infatuated with my sin and I love it and I will not forsake it and repent and confess it and vomit it up as if it were a sickness, then I have separated myself from God. It is a myth that God appreciates all prayer. So here's what I'm saying to you. We have got to pray, folks. We've got to go before God on behalf of other people because some people can't reach God on their own. God will not hear them, so we've got to pray for them. You see? In other words, those who have got the humble and repentant heart necessary to meet the conditions of God to reach Him in prayer have got to pray for others because they've not met those conditions. We shouldn't let anyone go without some kind of prayer especially those who can't reach Him on their own. And and you know, of course, how you reach God. You you meet His terms. You repent and place faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and keep your your heart warm and boiling for Him. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There's one God 
and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way to God. No one gets to God without Christ. And God's presence is His presence. His home is His home. Like your home, He decides who gets in and who doesn't. And He says, if you're going to come to Me, you've got to come through Jesus Christ. So that's why at the end of the service, as soon as I'm finished with my message, we're going to give you the opportunity to come to the one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. And so um, we, we need to pray and avoid intensely prayerlessness because the, the uh, offering of some prayers is abominable. The utterance of many prayers is abominable. But there's a second reason, and that is the need for our prayers is critical. Now, verses 3 through 18, some of the most desperate passages in the entire Bible. It's profoundly heartbreaking to, um, to read through this. What we find here in verses 3 through 18 is that desperate conditions pressed upon Israel in every way. And God articulates this by using parts of the human body to describe this. In verse 3, He says their hands are full of iniquity. Look there. In verse number 3 of Isaiah 59, Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. And then their lips. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. Really, this is their voice. It goes on to verse 4. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. And then he goes on and talks about the womb and uses the womb as a symbol of their productivity or wrong productivity in their society. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch children, no, vipers' eggs, and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. In other words, their morality or lack of was like a venomous snake set loose upon their community. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. In verses 7 and 8, he talks about their feet. Their feet run to evil. In other words, that which God condemned thrilled them so much so they rushed towards it. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. So he's talking about enthusiasm in their mind for sin. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they've not known. There is no justice in their ways. They've made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. We have been in turmoil since 1960 over persistent social problems and have thrown literally trillions of dollars guided and administered by the best of minds and the most intelligent people in the history of humanity and still these problems grow worse. And Israel knows all about it. And then he continues with their eyes in verses 9 through 12. Therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look... For light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. He continues. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as far as our iniquities, we know them. 
mass confusion and the inability to solve problems. They grope around as if they cannot see. And then he summarizes their condition in verses 13 through 15. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of, words of falsehood, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and watch this, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Those that are wicked before the eyes of God are celebrated, and those righteous before God are scorned and condemned. Does any of this sound familiar? Somebody asked someone the question, what do you think of civilization? He said, well, I think it's a great idea. Someone should try it. So every part of the body politic and every part of the human body that made up the individuals in Israel were committed and given to sin. And beloved, that was not enough to move Israel to intercede and pray. Vance Havner said, the reason we don't have revival is that the times are desperate, but the saints are not. Maybe a bit too casual and happy in prayer. Although happiness is a part of it. God is devastated with a lack of prayer. This is a day when many people applaud that which God is threatening to judge. And so what we see around us is not a reason to despair, but to seek God with intensity, with hell-robbing, heartbreaking, leather-lunged, full-throated life of prayer. And so every newscast is a call to prayer. Every news page is a call to prayer. Half the text messages are a call to prayer. Surely 75% of the pictures sent in text messages are a call to pray. Many Facebook posts are a call to pray. In other words, the culture throbs and pulsates with a, a pleading to the people of God to seek Him and to pray. The need for our prayers is critical. And we delight God when we'll pray through a crisis. So, the utterance of many prayers is abominable. The need for our prayers is critical. But there's a third reason God is devastated with the lack of prayer. And that is the consequence of no prayer is just horrible. In Genesis 18, God looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and threatened to judge it with fire and brimstone. In fact, Tim Collins, uh, Trinity International University, a graduate of Southwestern Seminary, is an archaeologist, and he has identified the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. A subsidiary of Simon & Schuster has published his book entitled Finding Sodom. In the Bible, there are 25 markers for the city of Sodom. And he used those geographical markers to find it. There are only 18 geographical markers for Jerusalem. And we know where Jerusalem is. He took those biblical markers and has identified Sodom and Gomorrah and has discovered in that place there is about a meter of ash at one certain strata in that time period when Sodom would have been judged. And there are actually skeletal remains of animals that look like they've been obliterated by something with the intensity of an atomic bomb. 
Abraham knew the wickedness of Sodom and he prayed for Sodom. He said, God, if you find 50 righteous people in that great city, will you stay your hand of judgment? And the Lord said, yes. Well, Abraham got to counting and got a little worried and said, well, wait a minute, what about 45? And the Lord said, okay, I'll, I'll show mercy if there are 45 righteous people in Sodom. Well, Abraham got to counting and he couldn't count 45, so he asked for 30. And the Lord said, I'll stay my hand if there are 30 righteous people in Sodom. Abraham reflected a bit more and thought, wait a minute, I can't count 30. What about 20? The Lord said, I will stay my hand of judgment on Sodom if there are 20. Abraham got a bit concerned. He couldn't count 20 that he knew that were righteous. And so he thought, well, Lot's got about 10 in his family. Lord, what if there are 10? What if my nephew's got at least 10? His children, sons-in-laws, wife, others, maybe a couple of others. The Lord said, I will withhold my judgment from Sodom if there are 10. Folks, Lot had done such a pitiful job evangelizing Sodom, there weren't 10. But what is interesting about that text is that God was willing to stretch His mercy just as far as He was willing to go. From 50 down to 10, if there were just 10, in that great, large, ancient city. In other words, Abraham, by his prayer, had the opportunity to restrain the judgment of God upon Sodom. Well, the Lord looks at Israel in verse 16 through 18, and he can't find anyone like Abraham. He saw that there was no man and wondered or was devastated there was no intercessor. So look how he responds. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. So the people would not act to clean up and restore righteousness through prayer, so God acts Himself to restore righteousness by acting as a warrior. Verse 17. For He put on righteousness as a what? As a breastplate. And a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, according He will repay fury to His adversaries, recompense to His enemies, the coastlands He will fully repay. American Christians, we have a choice. We can restore righteousness by prayer or God will restore it through judgment. In other words, a lack of fervent, robust prayer is an invitation to God to judge the land. Now, I, I want to assure you that these threatening words from the Lord are spoken before He judges, not after. One of the gracious and remarkable truths in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is this. Before God judges, He always warns. God never surprises anyone with judgment. Why is that? Because this God would rather save than judge. 
He would rather cancel the debt of sin. I mean, a God that would send His only Son to bleed for our sins, to suffer our death penalty in His court with His judicial system, must be a God like that. God is the kind of God who wants to cancel sin and forgive and redeem and transform those that are lost, those that are far from Him, those that have loved wickedness, He still has enough love and grace to forgive them all and sacrificed His Son to get it done. God is that kind of God. He always warns before He judges. Why? Because there's some people that won't pay attention to love. And as a last resort, God threatens judgment and hopes that that will get their attention and turn them to Him. Without prayer, though, we are inviting God to judge the land. And I've got to tell you, this is all over my heart. And this is why I've led us as I've led us since coming in January. I want God to save and transform. But I'm not going to presume upon that. I can't do that. I, I don't think you can either. Well, there's a fourth reason prayerlessness will devastate God. And that is the potential of some prayers is powerful. I remember this last summer... Some students and I were in Houston, and we were engaging in a thing called crossover. It takes place the week before the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. And from Monday morning through Monday night and every morning, afternoon, and evening through Saturday, we hit the streets of Houston and shared the gospel. And we saw almost 200 people come to Jesus, 190, at least 190. It was much more than that, but we lost count and couldn't keep up with everyone. But it was a powerful, powerful week. And I remember... We emphasize prayer, and I'll talk more about this Wednesday night. But I remember on Saturday, I had to go from block party to block party. We did four in a wealthy neighborhood in Houston. And our students staffed those and witnessed to those who came. We did them in four different neighborhoods, put on some games that would attract kids, fed the neighborhood, shared the gospel with those who were there. And we had four of them all over the city. And I was bouncing around from block party to block party. I started at block party one and went from Block Party 1 along Westlake Houston Parkway over to Block Party number 2, and I saw a father and his son riding a bicycle on that Saturday morning. And I said, God, I can't stop to witness to them. I pray, please get the gospel to them. So I went to Block Party 2. I was there about 30 minutes, and I went from Block Party 2 to Block Party 3, and that father and his son on the bicycle were at Block Party 3, and our students were about 60 seconds from leading them to Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, when we get to praying with a broken heart, with zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ, with great compassion for those who don't know the Lord, God acts and we get the attention of heaven. The potential even of weak prayers like mine is powerful. The only thing, Adrian Rogers said, the only thing that lies beyond the reach of prayer is that which lies beyond the, re the, the will of God. Everything within the will of God is within the reach of prayer. And so the potential of some prayers is powerful in verse 20 and 21. Substantiate, I'm not making this up. Look here. It says, actually in verse 19, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Paul quotes this in Romans eleven twenty six 26 and 27 and applies it to New Testament salvation. 
Then verse 21, As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Well, what does this mean? Well, there's some assumptions here. One assumption is, is that outside the Redeemer, we are enslaved by sin. You say, I'm not a slave to sin. Well, then quit sinning. Well, my sins are little. Well, then give those up too. And let's see how little they are. Hey, and try it on your own for a while. Some of you have tried that. You've tried on your own to give up sin, haven't you? What happens? Until you came to Christ, what happened when you tried to battle sin on your own? You know what happened. You just got worse. It's counterproductive. You think about it more. You're infatuated by it more. And so you offend heaven more. So we're enslaved to sin and we don't have the power to change. Our heart and our minds conspire against us. The Lord knows that about human nature. He knows every bit of that. And so He takes care of the need. He says here, I am a Redeemer. A Redeemer was usually a family member who would find a family, another family member in dire straits in some difficult circumstances, usually financial, and would pay off their debts and set them free. And the Lord says, you're indebted to sin. You're guilty. You're in bondage. The consequences and penalty for sin are very real. I am going to come myself and pay the price to release you from it all. But not only are you going to be free because I'm the Redeemer, but I'm going to do something remarkable not only for you but in you. I'm going to take my word and I'm going to put it in your mouth and in your heart. It's going to be that intimate, that influential, that intense with you. It's going to be internal. And I'm going to give you a new heart, Jeremiah will say in Jeremiah 31. Ezekiel will repeat it in Ezekiel 36. This is what I'm going to do for you. So you're going to have a new nature. You're going to change. And righteousness for you can become almost as common as breathing. And if you struggle in this life, there's going to be a time when I will eliminate it all and there will be nothing but righteousness that will pour forth from your life. That's going to be so powerful, it will be true for your descendants and your descendants' descendants. I'm going to give it to you. Now God's limited in this promise. That's not just all. Instead... He says, I will do it to those, in verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression, who flee sin. We've watched an awful lot of Olympics this past week and it reminds me of the old ABC Worldwide, Wide World, Worldwide. Thank you. You preach next Sunday. ABC had a great sportscast on Saturdays uh, that had an introductory lead-in to it. Uh, and 
we have stated this over and over again to where it's become a cliche, but you remember the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Do you remember the picture and the slide or the video that was shown with the agony of defeat? It was that downhill skier, ski jumper, that would jump, and what happened as soon as he took off? He lost his coordination and crashed, and it was really a cool crash. (laughs) It looked like he was obliterated uh, on the uh, surface, on the snow. Well, he was interviewed years later about that jump that had become sort of a cultural icon for the agony of defeat. And they asked him about that jump. And he said, well, it's strange, but I was going down the slope about to jump, and I noticed that the slope had pretty much turned to ice, and I was going down too fast. And I feared that if I took that jump, I was going to land too far in the trees and kill myself or be terribly injured. Now, he came out of his fall with just a few bruises. But had he gone on further and just gone through with the jump, he, he feared for his life. And so he said, what I did is that on purpose, I wrecked myself so that I would avoid a worse fate. And he got out of it almost with that injury. He intentionally wrecked himself so a worse fate would not come. I'm asking you to do the same thing today. Without the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, you are looking at a worse fate. I don't know, unless you know more about about all this than Jesus does. Do you know more about judgment and eternity than Jesus does? Do you know more about the consequences of life than Jesus does? If you don't, I suggest you flee to Him. I suggest you run to Him today. And even if you've got to crash with some of your aspirations and goals and priorities and even friendships, loyalties, relationships, go ahead and crash. It's not nearly as painful as it is to go through this life and the next without the Redeemer. Now, let me just ask you a question. Why in the world would you want to go on this life and the next without the Redeemer? This is the God that pays the price with the blood of His own Son. Is there a greater love? This is the one who who has the power to make real promises to change the heart. Is there a greater power? No. This is the one your heart has been longing for and you have been looking for. The Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to come and turn to Him today. So if you will turn from transgression, if necessary, cause an eruption and wreck in your own life now to avoid a greater one later. He will be your Redeemer and cancel sin. Well, let me encourage you, turn away from presumption. Don't assume you're accepted by God. No one is accepted by God outside of Jesus Christ. They are profoundly rejected and under the judgment of God. John 3.18 says that... He who does not believe is condemned already. You see, you're separated from God and God is hiding Himself from you because of a lack of faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. 
So repent from that. Get rid of that silly, naive notion that God accepts everybody. God does not. God only accepts those who've repented and placed faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, there is no hope. Unless you know something about this, Jesus didn't know. Unless your knowledge is superior to Him. Turn from that. Then turn from resistance. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. He's promised where two or three are gathered in His name. There I am in the midst of them. I'd say we've got two or three here gathered in His name. He is in the midst. He is near. You can call upon Him. Resist no longer. And then repent from any shame you may have over His name. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of them who bring good news. The good news is something to view as a beauty. I remember when I first saw Michelle. I, I could barely get over I'm not over it now. I may pass out. Yes, I'm trying to score points, but that's where I am. And <laughs> she had flown into the Shreveport Airport and she'd ridden a van back to East Texas Baptist University and she got off that, uh, off that church van holding her shoes, dressed in a white blouse and a pink skirt. And I said, Lord, I want to put an order in for that one right there. <laughs> That's what that beauty did to me. And then I spent the next two years trying to figure out if, you know, how do I get this thing done? But anyway, um, that's how we're to view the gospel. We're to view the gospel with the same zeal and heart as we do our beloved. A sweetheart. We're not to be ashamed of it. If you're ashamed of Jesus, stay where you are today. Don't come. If your heart is not willing to go public for Him, stay where you are. If you're ashamed of Him, He'll be ashamed of you, but at least you'll not be a hypocrite. And there's very little comfort in that, by the way. But if, if you are willing to turn, acknowledge I am condemned before God, Christ is my only hope through His cross and resurrection, and I'm willing to go public for the Lord Jesus, you come. And we're going to give you the opportunity right now to turn to Him. Let's talk to Him about it. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for the great opportunity to talk with You about these things. Lord, we don't want to be prayerless. And I pray that for many here today, their first prayer may need to be, God save me and be merciful to me, a sinner. I pray they would turn to You now and open up their heart and life and say yes to Jesus and bow everything before Him. Help them to turn from transgression because we know that's Your will. And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, they get right with God today. For the rest of us, Lord, help us not be prayerless, but prayerful. Please accelerate the kingdom of God here through the ministry of this church because we've met here today. Let nothing be the same after this invitation. Now, as you keep talking to God, let me ask you to listen to me real carefully. No one's looking around. But listen real carefully. If you need to turn to the Lord, I want to invite you to come. Our staff members will be standing here. You just tell them, I need to come to Christ today. You step out from where you are, walk down the aisle. Folks will move out of the way. You meet one of our staff members here. I need to come to Christ today. You come. They'll help you. If God is leading you to be a part of our church family here, we want you to come as well. You're coming not just to join. You're coming to serve. You move your letter. You move your life. Make a statement for Christ with 
the intention of being active in serving the king through the ministry of this church. You come. Maybe God's calling you to ministry. We want you to come as well. We want to pray with you about that. Maybe you've received Christ, but you need to follow him in baptism. You come. Once we do that, we're going to ask the church family to come with their prayer commitments. We'll start with staff. Then we'll ask deacons to come. Then we'll ask Sunday school workers to come. Then the rest of our membership. Take your card that you have filled out and place it in the altar and quietly turn to your seat. It'll be a little chaotic here, but I want you to wait on the prayer commitments until I call you. We want to extend the invitation first to those that make standard traditional commitments. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. Finish my prayer. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to extend our standard invitation first, and then I will verbally invite you to make your prayer commitment. Would you quietly stand with me, please, and let me finish my prayer. Stand right now, please, and let me pray. Father, would you please get all the glory for Jesus that he deserves today. Save those that are lost and claim us who are making a commitment to prayer today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You come. If you need Christ, come.